has renewed the promise he made to Abraham. We have new laws preparing us for the promised land. If we are true to God, he will keep his promise. Abraham's dream. Our future. You are our people's future, Joshua. You must take the land promised to Abraham and all of his descendants. As numerous as the stars, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 30, Joshua, Rahab, and Courage. Though born into the blessed tribe of Ephraim, the son of Joseph in Egypt, Joshua was raised as a slave in Egypt. Little is known of him in Egypt, but after the Red Sea crossing, he was quickly tagged by Moses to be his aide and military leader. At Mount Sinai, he followed Moses up the mountain at least halfway. In addition, many times he followed Moses into the tent of meeting, and it even says he stayed with Moses there, and he stayed there alone with God after Moses left. At Kadesh Barnea, Joshua was selected as one of the twelve spies. As one of the good spies, he was rewarded by God himself and allowed to outlive his generation and not only enter but lead the Israelites into the promised land. Joshua was faithful and a wise choice to succeed Moses. It is interesting Moses didn't choose his own children to succeed him. In fact, there is a little mention of them. Succession of leadership to Joshua was obvious because he was faithful, he obeyed God, He was discipled by Moses himself, and he was a warrior, which would be his calling. This is where we have to step back and look at Joshua for what he represents. Let's start with his name. His name in Hebrew is pronounced very similar to this, Yahshua. Jesus, who comes 1,400 years later, his name in Hebrew is pronounced Yeshua. Sound familiar? Why the similarities? Because Joshua is a type of Jesus. We have to view Joshua for what he represents. He represents Jesus, the commander of the Lord's armies. He represents Jesus himself. Not only the lamb or suffering servant like Isaac. No, he represents the lion, the powerful lion who has to judge the earth. Jesus came 1,400 years later to be the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb to forgive and release men from bondage. But he has to come again to judge the nations and the peoples of the earth. At the end of time, Jesus will come back as a lion to fulfill the book of Revelation. Joshua, a type of Jesus, will be assigned the job of judging the land of Israel and removing those peoples and nations that have defiled the land and separated it from God's people. Judgment was coming, and God will be using Israel to do the work of judgment. The minute they crossed the Jordan, war was symbolically declared on every nation across the water. 
and Joshua, not Moses, will be their leader. In our vernacular, crossing the Jordan has been interpreted as some form of breakthrough or promise or just some cool phrase. But before the promise can be lived out, there must be invasion and war. Crossing the Jordan will not be a passive thing. No, crossing the Jordan means invasion. And at the head of a nation of 3 million people and 600,000 armed warriors was Joshua. Here's the beginning of the book of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give you to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. This was God's repeated encouragement to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. So let's park here at the spiritual concept of courage. Take note how many times God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. I'm going to read the Webster 1828 Dictionary Definition of Courage. And I'll try to use this dictionary in the future because it is the closest thing to a biblical dictionary there is. Since some definitions typically have a scripture reference, and the definitions are based upon biblical mindsets. I'll put a link on the Facebook page of the website to their dictionary. Also, so here is the Webster 1828 definition of courage. Bravery, intrepidity, that quality of mind that enables men to encounter danger and difficulties with firmness, without fear or depression of spirits, valor, boldness, and resolution. Courage is a fascinating thing if you consider it. I mean, think about the entire interest of action movies and warfare. There's always a hero who performs acts of valor and heroism, and people are inspired by his or her deeds or action. Hollywood is full of movies yearly that encompass this genre. I've been pondering an interesting question. Why do acts of valor and courage engage people so much? I believe the answer can be spiritual in nature because it requires an unnatural amount of faith to leap into the impossible. The answer I've been getting is not what you expect. I keep coming up with faith. Why do acts of courage inspire people? Because there are acts of faith. To see acts of faith inspire us. The greater the risk, the greater the story. 
the greater the hook. Faith in one's own success, faith in one's own duty, faith in one's own cause, faith in one's own God. It was Jesus himself who said the following in Matthew 15:3, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's own friends. When a man puts his life on the line for a cause and for another, it shows great faith and love for their cause or belief in their friends or cause more than their own life. Isn't this warfare? Soldiers who risk their lives every day. To put in the context of Victorian adage, duty over self. To value anything over one's own life requires and takes faith. All right, so just picture the scene. Joshua was wrecked. The great Moses was dead. Who could lead the people now? Only one, Joshua. God said to him, take heart, take courage, no longer be depressed in spirits. Like the definition, God was saying, take up that quality of mind to take on adversity without change in your spirit. Take up your sword and follow me. In the natural, Joshua is facing giants, larger and more formidable enemies and fortifications. In the natural, men should fear such things, but God is not a man. There is something about bravery that brings glory to God. There is something about a stand against all odds. There is something very godlike in this scene, or it would not be in the Bible. We will see in the life of Joshua, Jonathan, and David, and many others, there is glory in battle, and there is a speci- this is especially true since we fight a spiritual battle. Bravery and courage are faith in action. Courage requires outrageous faith. To put your life on the line to achieve victory requires a solid reserve and steadfast spirit, ignoring physical and natural fears. To put in the context of another verse, courage in battle is putting one's face like flint towards fear and distractions. And when I think of courage as an American, I think about the heroes of our past. I specifically think of the heroes and the generation which fought in World War II. In fact, there has been a reawakening recently of the dying out generation in America of those who fought in World War II. They have been called the greatest generation recently. Their generation and many others were coined as having what they called moral courage, for they fought all sorts of evil and won for freedom and democracy and helped change the world. We celebrate their victories to this day. Some celebrate their courage today by calling them the greatest generation. My grandfather fought in the Pacific in World War II, and when I heard the stories as a child, I was quickened with the glorious tones of bravery and acts of valor, and it helped to shape me. And one of the stories, and there were many he refused to tell, but one of them was a story when he served on the island of New Caledonia. Here is one of his stories. It's not exactly about bravery, but it's from this generation. When he was serving on New Caledonia, he was incredibly sick one day, and he had to go to the infirmary. And while he was at the infirmary, his friends went to the theater that night. And that evening, the Japanese bombed New Caledonia, and the movie theater took a direct hit. The result? All of his friends died. But my grandfather lived because he didn't go to the theater that night, because he was sick. And because of that sickness, my family is around today. 
That's just a sliver of life shared from this American who lived in what they call the greatest American generation. Staying with World War II, when the entire 101st Airborne was trapped in Bastogne in World War II during the Battle of the Bulge, surrounded by Germans and their tanks, and outnumbered 5 to 1, it was foolish to not surrender in the natural. But it was that moral courage and that steadfast spirit in Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe that replied back to the Germans upon request to surrender. Nuts. That took guts. And at that moment, the German battalions directed all their fire on his small force, which hung on for days and stalled and turned the Battle of the Bulge for the Allies and prevented the German breakthrough. This story is amazing and full of outrageous courage against all odds. This is what God was telling Joshua, outnumbered and soon to be surrounded in a land full of enemy nations and armies, God didn't care. This is what God was implying, I don't care what's in front of you, I don't care what giants lay before you, I don't care what you hear or see or smell or feel. I am God and I will grant you victory. Be strong and courageous. When I was in high school, one of my favorite subjects was history, and I love military history, particularly due to my grandfather, and I read as many military history books as I could get my hands on, and people took notice. One day, a Korean War veteran noticed my interest, and he passed on a message to me, and he said, did you know some of the greatest battles in all of history are in the Bible? Well, unfortunately, I didn't believe him. I did seek it out, though, but the Bible didn't hold my interest. But it wasn't until about five years ago did I come to understand his words. This old-timer was very correct. The battles in the Bible rival any war in world history in intrigue, tactics, strategy, and complexity, and they clearly exceed all other conflicts because we get a spiritual perspective that is so hard to find in military history. One of my goals of this podcast is to honor that Korean War veteran who tried to educate an immature young man over 20 years ago. All right, so back to the storyline. At the moment, the Israelites are camped in the plains of Moab, facing east, about to cross the Jordan. And directly across the Jordan was a city of Jericho. The city of Jericho, in the general location of the current city with the same name, was an ancient city known for its massive fortifications with over 20-foot-high walls. So it had a Bronze Age army. This was an impregnable fortress. In addition, Jericho had springs within the walls and food stores that could last for months, maybe years. Joshua faced a dilemma, how to conquer an unconquerable fortress with limited Bronze Age weapons. His first step, send spies. And before crossing the Jordan, Joshua secretly sends two unnamed spies into Jericho to check it out. This is where we get to the Bible's James Bond mission. This is very different than the previous spy mission 38 years back. These spies were handpicked by Joshua, not delegates or ambassadors from each tribe. Joshua learns from his mistakes, and also they are nameless, which is consistent with the art of espionage. 
All right, so why do I call it the James Bond mission? Let me explain. We have espionage, war, secret weapons, two unnamed spies, complete with the Bond girl named Rahab. Now, the spies cross the Jordan and sneak into Jericho, and they end up at a prostitute's house named Rahab. And according to some Jewish traditional sources, she was, one of them says that she's the most beautiful woman in the world, while other sources make it clear that she had been with every known ruler in the world. And those are, of course, Jewish traditional stories. She was most likely either a priestess or part of a cult of demonic worship, because prostitutes were part of the religious order of those in those societies. So why are the spies in the prostitute's house? And I have to assume if they are Joshua's hand-picked men, they were not led by the flesh. But this is a James Bond mission. So maybe they were fleeing and ended up there. Or could it be they purposely went to the most notable and influential woman in the city, a priestess and a prostitute? If you want to obtain information in a city, who better would you go to? Well, regardless of the motives and the leadings, clearly their steps were dictated by the Holy Spirit, which we will soon find out later. Somehow the spies were seen, and the king of Jericho rallied his troops to search for these spies. And upon questioning Rahab, she said she saw them, but they had left, and the troops left the city searching for them. Now Rahab hid the spies on the roof, for her house was in the wall of the city. Then the dialogue gets good. Joshua 2, 9. And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign. All right, so check out what she says. She says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She was a believer, a penitent prostitute, and most likely a repentant priestess of a demonic religion. Here, acknowledge God is all-powerful. You have to believe her answer had loudspeakers attached to it in heaven. For here was a true penitent sinner crying out for help. So authentic was her answer, the spies guaranteed her safety upon the loss of their own life without even asking Joshua. She also gave them intel into the morale of the city. She said the defenders had lost courage and their hearts melted like liquid in fear of the Israelites. Finally, her instructions from the spies were to bring her entire family into her house and hang a scarlet thread from her window upon the assault on the city. Take note here and try to remember the scarlet thread or rope. The symbolism because the tie into the rest of the Bible is truly staggering. You think she's just a Bond girl. You've got it wrong. Her destiny could wreck you if you consider she is a picture of grace 
hidden in the rough Old Testament. But we will get back to her soon. With the arrangement made with Rahab, the spies make it back to Joshua and report the news of the fear of the Israelites and how the people of Jericho had lost courage. I like how courage is still getting thrown around again and again. First Moses and God tell Joshua to be courageous, and now it says the enemy has lost courage. Back to that Webster definition, the people of Jericho have lost that state of mind to resist their attackers, but instead they resign to a depressed and saddened state of defeat. In a current military context, the words for courage pretty much are morale. The defender's morale was terribly low. In the Bible, it is referred to as courage. It is the Lord who gave and took away courage. Consider that interesting thought looking through wars in history, that the Lord himself can grant courage and take it away, that God himself sent a terror ahead of the Israelites to instill fear in them. And consider this, that God can do it again whenever he pleases. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'd like to take everyone to San Antonio, March 3rd, 1836. The location, the Alamo. The dictator of Mexico and the general of their army, Santa Ana, with 5,000 troops has surrounded 300 Texans and put them under siege. The encirclement was almost complete, and there is a really cool legend of the story. But to be clear, it is a legend because none of the few survivors actually confirm it. In fact, the most recent movies leave this scene out, but it's an amazing story, and whether it's truth, fiction, or legend, it proves a spiritual point. So here it goes. Santa Ana sent a message to Colonel William Travis, commanding his surrender or his death. In response to this ultimatum, he did the following. Travis assembled the men of the Alamo, and called him to attention, and took his sword, and drew a line in the sand in the ground of the Alamo, and asked for volunteers to cross over the line to join him in a fight to the death over the Alamo. All of the garrison but one, including Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, joined Travis by stepping over the line. Then, in Texan style, they didn't send a polite denial to Santa Ana, but replied to his request of surrender with cannon fire. This story is very dramatic, but in the context of a walk with Jesus, we must make lines in the sand. We must take a stand against darkness and sin. Some people fail in their walk with God because they haven't crossed the line or point of no return. Some people have refused to take heart and be courageous and cross the line of no return. Joshua's line in the sand was the Jordan, which he will be crossing in the next episode. And I ask you, are you courageous? Have you made a stand in your life? For our stand is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Joshua took a stand and crossed his line. And one of the most famous lines from Joshua's life is from Joshua 24:15, when he states, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in this context, I ask you, the listener, what is your line in the sand? What is your decree over your life? 
Where do you stand with courage, with a moral steadfast spirit, and a face like flint towards adversity, where you will not be mentally moved? Can you say the same words as Joshua? As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. It takes courage. Pray for it. Pursue it. Make it a character of your life. Be strong and courageous. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message of Kings. Stay tuned next week as the Israelites cross the Jordan. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.